Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to Daniel chapter 12. We'll close out the book of Daniel this morning by reading verses 5 through 13. We read, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, And swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. We come to the end of our journey through the book of Daniel. And we're left with encouragement toward endurance and the final reward for the faithful, particularly exhibited by Daniel. It seems that we have a new vision here, or at the very least, a scene change in the vision set off by the, then I, Daniel, looked and behold. If you go back in the book of Daniel, you also see this in the book of Revelation, that the kind of, then I look and behold, you know, there's some kind of scene change. We're now looking at something, something else in the vision And that makes sense because this final part is in one sense a commentary on, an analysis of, questions about the vision that we just got done walking through in chapters, properly speaking, I suppose, 10 through 12, 4. And he looks and he says that there are two heavenly messengers, presumably, two others stood, One on the side of the stream. Remember the whole thing started in chapter 10 and being on the banks of the Tigris River here called the stream. One messenger on his side. Another messenger on the other side. Another one. And in verse 6, the man in linen from chapter 10 shows back up. And someone... Again, presumably one of the messengers that showed up, didn't, it doesn't explicitly clarify that, but that's what we would assume here, asks 
a question in verse 6. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? There's a few things to consider here. First, you'll recall I suggested that this man in linen from chapter 10, particularly in when you compare Ezekiel 1 and even Revelation chapter 1, and we had a picture of a theophany, that is to say an appearance of the Lord, maybe even a Christophany, kind of more specifically, you know, a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son. And as we're reading down through here, you might ask, does this suggest that the man in linen has been doing the talking all along? And, and then there's kind of these two heavenly beings that appear. Or does the scene change suggest uh, that there's an overlap of two scenes? Kind of like in the ram and the goat in chapter 8, if you remember. He sees, a, uh, he sees the ram, then he sees the goat, and then he sees the goat charges the ram. And there's kind of an overlap. I looked and then I saw this, I looked and I saw this, then I looked and then there were two things combined together. Is, is that what's going on? That You have the scene change language and then you have something else? It's hard to say. Okay, On the one hand, because there's no introduction to the man in linen, it does feel natural to suggest that he's been the one talking. And my suggestion about the shift to an angelic interpreter, if you recall, that's what I suggested, that was, it's possible that's just wrong. Could be that that's just mistaken. Okay, that I'm just mistaken there. But it also may be the case that in conjunction with the look and behold language that we're getting a scene change with overlap. And if in fact it has been this man in linen speaking, you've got to tell a story about how this theophany, if that's what you think it is, how, how God, God the Son gets held up by a regional sub-deity. Remember? He says, I was held up by the prince of Persia 21 days until Michael came and bailed me out. You, know, you might think that God the Son might not need any help against a small, you know, regional sub-deity. Tension either way. Thankfully, I don't think a ton hinges on it, but I did want to call your attention to it because it, the man in linen from chapter 10 now shows back up. So you've got to say something about it. Of course, the third option, you could say the man in linen isn't, you could solve both problems by saying the man in linen isn't an angel, or isn't uh, the Lord at all. It's not a theophany. You say it's just an angel. Described very godlike, but it's a, but it's not an angel. Maybe it's like a particularly, it's not God. Excuse me, it's an angel. Maybe a particularly high power angel, something like that. Regardless of what one concludes here, this man in linen, an appearance of the Lord, I'm suggesting, is now above the waters of the stream. Okay, so position change, no matter what. There's been a position change, no matter what you say. And there's a question asked here. How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Not meaning how, how long until they start, but how long, once they start, will they last? It's a question about endurance. How long will this last? And the wonders almost certainly is a reference to the astonishing conquests and behaviors of this final end-time king of the north that we read about in chapter 11. And I think the, the rest of the passage will clarify that. This end time, as I've suggested, Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? 
And in response to the question, this man clothed in linen gives a solemn oath. And the purpose of him giving this is to provide truth with certainty. Truth with certainty. The response is made really more dramatic by him raising both hands. The Jewish custom was to raise one hand when you were uh, taking an oath. He raises two, and so we read, he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. That's his question to how long this will last for. How long will this endure? You might recall the language of time, times, and half a time from Daniel chapter 7. I've already seen this language once. It's the little horn, who I argued is the same as equivalent to this end-time man of lawlessness. Remember, Daniel records, He, the little horn, shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. I want to suggest the phrase here means the same thing as it meant there. And if you forgot, or you weren't there, just very briefly, the idea is you have a time, then you have times, two times, and you're expecting four times, because that gets you to seven, which is this, in the book of Daniel, this number that, that designates a period of time over which something is supposed to be accomplished and completed. Okay, sometimes it's glossed as a number of completeness. It's completeness. It's really a time frame over which something is supposed to be completed. And the idea is that right when things are supposed to be ramping up, one, two, instead of time, times, and four times, which you would be expecting as things exponentially increase, it gets cut in half. Instead of times, time, times, and four times, it's time, times, and half a time. That gets you, that's three and a half, that's seven. So we're not working in, we're not trying to be uh, uh, predict days, and we're not trying to be overly literal, but we're trying to understand the symbols relative to one another. And in the book of Daniel, seven uh, designates this period of time over which something's to be completed. Time times half a time seems to suggest this build, but instead of ramping up to the final completion, it gets cut short. That's That's what symbolically is being communicated. So how long will this end-time scourge last? It will be cut short right when it appears to be ramping up, right when things get the darkest, or in the language of the latter part of the verse, when the shattering, the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. The holy people are going to be shattered. And when that comes to an end, then these things will be finished. Then the powers of darkness and the persecution will be cut short and the saints will be given the victory. So if the, if the time, times, half a time thing is kind of giving you trouble, let me just give you an, an analogy. Let me risk a football illustration here, okay? Uh, regrettably, the, the team that I pull for, the Alabama Crimson Tide, likes to keep things dramatic oftentimes. And so uh, what will happen is I'll get, if I can't watch a game, which usually I tell people I'm busy, they schedule something on Saturday uh, uh, during, you know, 2.30 or so, I'm not available. Uh, but but uh, sometimes I'll have to get updates 
my dad is just incessantly texting what's going on and uh, the tide will drop behind. You're like, ah, they'll pull it out. But then they drop a little further behind. And then they're behind in the third quarter. And then the fourth quarter, they pull it out. Sometimes, multiple times I've watched it on like the last play. Right when you think, oh no, this couldn't get worse for the tide, blocked punt. Oh, this couldn't get worse. Another interception. And in the fourth quarter, something happens that no one can explain and the team actually plays football. And all of a sudden, they win. That's kind of the feeling here. There is this, how much worse could it get times, time? Oh wait, they're going to go all the way to the completed end. They're going when, to, when the fourth quarter goes to zero, they're going to be winning. And the idea is, no. It will build and you'll think, no, 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 no. And the saints will be given the victory. Hail Mary on the last play. It's a cross-denominational reference there, okay? Some of you picked on, up on that. How about that? Okay. And so now Daniel, who's doing holy eavesdropping again here, he's listening in. He hears this question, and he confesses something that strikes us both as remarkable and expected at the same time. So he hears this without the benefit of my football illustration, of course. He says, I heard, but I did not understand. Can you relate to that? It's like, yeah, I can. It's like your sermons on this book. Um, he, he hears the words coming out of this person's mouth, but he doesn't understand them. And again, with the boldness of his prayer in chapter 9, what does he do? He decides he'll keep asking. That's what he does. Second half, verse 8. I heard, but I understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? I mean, goodness gracious, he just talked about the shattering of the holy people. One of these, presumably one of these messengers asked, how long will these things last? He hears, but doesn't understand, asks a follow-up question for clarity. And given how much he has been indulged, we might be slightly surprised by what we read, he said, go your way, Daniel. Go your way. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. He is not upset that Daniel asks the question. But here's the reality. This is the end of the conversation. Go your way, Daniel. It's time. You got great questions. This, this is the end of, of what's going to be revealed to you. You're one greatly loved. It's now time to go your way and be faithful. Be content with not understanding or not understanding why. He tips us off as to why Daniel is understandably confused. One Old Testament scholar summarizes it nicely. He said, the reason for this command is stated in the fact that the words are preserved in security, this is the sealed up, against destruction, so that they may be read and understood at the time of their fulfillment. It is not necessary that Daniel himself should understand the answer to his question, 
for it does not have immediate application to him. There will come a time, however, when the words are needed, and then they will be understood. Therefore, they are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And interestingly, although there's not going to be any further answer, the response to Daniel doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. He says, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. He describes two kinds of people corresponding to the two fates in verse 2. Everlasting life, everlasting contempt, where the wise will shine like stars. And what he's saying is this trend will continue throughout history and when it's time for people to understand the revelation, and I would say that we're on the other side of the cross, and Christ is the hermeneutical key that unlocks this age and the age to come. We have perspective that Daniel did not have. But it says, when it's time for people to understand what's being described here so that they can have hope, they will do so. And surely what that's, that's got to be what it means, right? Because what's the alternative? Surely we're not to, to think that the reason Daniel doesn't understand is because he's not wise. He's like the prototypical wise man in the whole book. Surely the reason that he doesn't understand isn't because he's not wise. No, instead we're being told that those who fear the Lord as the beginning of knowledge and wisdom will have, well, excuse me, will understand the nature of the revelation when it's time so that they will have hope, just like subsequent generations of Jews who will endure the kings of the north and the south and Antiochus Epiphanes and all the rest of it. No, they, they will have hope, and then part of this is for them. And so go your way, Daniel. Go your way. And in verses 10 through 12, the response, not to be confused with an answer, continues. He says, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Now, there is an interpretive decision that has to be made here. And here's what it is. Is this a reference to the final scourge of history that we just read about, this end-time Antiochus, or is it a reference back to chapter 11's Antiochus Epiphanes that got 14 verses in that one chapter? On the one hand, all the questions and interaction thus far are about this final scourge of history. But there's very good reason to think that the man clothed in linen, in a what amounts to a very Jesus-like response, by the way, he gives a reply that does not directly relate to Daniel's question. It's what he needs to hear, but it's not the answer he was looking for about the outcome of the shattering of God's people. Let me give you a couple of reasons for thinking that. This is not sleight of hand here. So I'm about to justify why I think that this is going back to historical Antiochus epiphanies instead of continuing on talking about the end of all things. First, the language is identical 
to how Antiochus Epiphanes is described and what he does. Verse 31 of chapter 11. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus Epiphanes. This text, and from the time the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Second, the time frame given for the end of these wonders has already been given in terms of duration, in terms of how it will last at least, times, time, times, and half a time. And so here, a particular number of days is given, which I'll talk about in just a second. But if we're interpreting the symbols uh, uh, relative to one another, we're getting a different description here. We're in the same chapter, things, two things described symbolically two different ways we're getting a description of something else. It also mentions the regular burnt offering. Fits great with Antiochus Epiphanes. Not so great after the destruction of the temple where there, where there is no temple and there is no regular burnt offering because Christ has already been the offering. And then finally, Daniel was just told he wasn't getting an answer about the outcome of these things. Do we get here and think the man in linen goes, just kidding. Actually, I am going to tell you I mean, this seems something like an outcome. It seems something like, you know, there will be you know, 1,290 days and, and until the, and, you know, the sacrifices are reinstituted and folks who make it to the 1335, those folks are going to be blessed. I mean, that sounds something like an answer that the man in Lennon just told Daniel he wasn't going to give him. Something, something like that. So I think when you take at least all those in conjunction, there's very good reason to think that in his final words of comfort, he's giving Daniel, and by extension God's people, revelation about something that will be closer to their generation and extremely intense. And so instead of giving an answer in a very Jesus-like way, he gives this response. He gives this definite response. Now, what are we, everyone's wondering, what are we supposed to do with the 1290 days and the 1335? Just give me one second, I'll tell you. Doing the math quickly, remember... Jewish year, 360 days, not 365 days. Three and a half years, remember three and a half from just a second ago? Three and a half years is 1,260 days. 1,290 days is, is one month more. So you, got, you get 360 by 12, 30-day months in Jewish calendar. Okay, one month longer. And then the 1,335 days, 45 days past that. Now, People have tried to line up these days, like exact number of days, like from when the temple was dedicated to Zeus. No, from when the burnt offering was taken away to the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. No, to, the, to when they were reinstituted. And it was, tw you could probably, if you've been following along here, okay, I'm not impressed by any of those efforts. And none of them line up historically. All of them are like, whoa, that's a huge stretch. To be, you know, this is the exact day that this happened, and that's what this is talking about. It's very difficult when you read the folks who really have dug into the history here. Uh, it's extremely difficult to have any justification for thinking this refers to this is the exact day that this happened, and then 1,290 days after this happened. Instead, we're we're getting the we're getting symbol. That's exactly what we've continued. What we've gotten is symbol. This is the point of symbolism. Let me give you another illustration. Um, some of you know Vicky Yeo and Mar Martha Menezi are, who came out, who were raised on power anthems and that kind of stuff. Because of who you are, because of who you are as a song. Um, 
It's this, yeah, it's, I don't know how to describe it except like a power anthem. It's awesome. It's awesome. Totally different than the kind of music we sing, just to be very clear. Equally awesome. And though this is one of these songs that continues to build, okay? It builds. And so what you'll have to, you know, they kind of start off, you know, it starts off and it's like, oh, this is nice and the voice is good. By the way, if you want to go, look, Martha Menezes has the better version. Someone's like, oh, I'm going to go listen to that song. Martha Menezes' version, in my opinion, is better than Vicky's. Anyways, it's this song that builds. So you got the, it's kind of the first uh, verse or whatever in chorus. Like, oh, this is nice, flowing along here. And then, I don't remember how many, but there's like three or four chord changes and crescendos and volume increases, and it just keeps going up. And it's like, oh man, this is like the last round. Like, here we are. Song's about to close out, and then, ooh, we go up again. They're like, oh man, you can't even sing any higher than this. And then finally, ah, up here. That's the, that's the effect that you're supposed to feel with this right here. That's the effect. That's the effect of the 1290 and the 1335. So don't torturously try to grapple with the actual number. We interpret the symbols relative to the symbols. We have time times half a time. We have, this is going to go on. It's like, okay, here, the, half a, the, the time times half a time is here. We're ready. And there's going to be a little bit longer. No, wait, it can't go any longer. This has got to be it. Here we are. It can't get any worse. 45 more days. It's even got worse. It's describing this shattering that's going to happen. But in this case, in the case of in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, I told you that the end time Antiochus Epiphanes is kind of the final fulfillment of the historical one. And so there are some who see a double reference. Some say, well, it's, you know, it's Antiochus Epiphanes, but because there's also, an, he's a type of this end time Antiochus Epiphanes, it's kind of a both and. There's going to be a, a shattering then and then a, a shattering uh, uh, later to come. You know, the shattering in this verse, in this passage, is the end of the end. And the persecution under Antiochus is, I think, something different. Theologically, I think that's right. There is going to be. There was certainly persecution. There will be persecution. But you got to get the right theology from the right text. Whether that can be justified here is not clear. I think that his final moment, uh, final line of comfort here, actually not the final line, second to final line of comfort, he's getting a definite hope that a persecution that's on a closer horizon, you might say, is set in stone by a sovereign God. And that's why you have numbers. It's this sense of definiteness, if you will. As the curtain closes on the book of Daniel, all the visions, all the ground that we've covered, all the stories, all the conflicts, all the interpretations, what is Daniel left with? Well, we circle back to the answer, the, excuse me, the response, but no answer. That kind of bookends the section, which again, is why one of the reasons I think what we just discussed is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. He says again, but go your way. Same, same language from verse 9. But go your way till the end. And you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Go your way. Be faithful. And you shall rest in the dust of the earth. And then you shall stand in your allotted place. Your designated place at the end of the days. You know, end is used twice here in this verse in two different ways. 
Go your way till the end, parentheses, of your life, and then you shall stand in your allotted place at the end. Go your way till the end of your days, and at the end of the days, you will stand, you will rise in your allotted place. This is that kind of written in the book declaration announcement over your life. There is an assigned place for him at the resurrection. So if you've ever had the great misfortune of having assigned seats at a reception and worry about sitting people, you know, you don't, uh, you know, you don't really want to talk to or strangers, uh, which is awful, a horrible thing. But sometimes it happens. And um, this isn't like that. This is more like an assigned seat at the World Cup final. or This is something that is definite. You don't, you're not going to get crowded out, and there is something guaranteed for you, and it's a, in a good thing. It, it, it's in a good way, excuse me. A glorious way. You aren't sitting around wondering. I mean, just imagine, not all of us, I'm not going to pretend that you, everyone can appropriate this verse to themselves, because this was spoken to Daniel. It zooms in on the man Daniel right here. Okay, we can make application, but this is to Daniel. Imagine when you're older, maybe you're someone who struggles with doubt. I don't don't think Daniel's struggling with doubt. But have Jesus say, to have the voice of God say, I'll see you at the resurrection. Man. Hey, Daniel, there's 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 a designated spot for you. The future has already been declared over you. See the second application point from last sermon. That's the hope. You will rest and then you will rise because it's been guaranteed. And so, as we turn towards singing Zion's song in a foreign land one last time before we start 1 John, what can we pull out of this text? I have just two focused points of application here. The first is the reality of living with unanswered questions. Daniel's pattern of prayer and petition throughout this book is so commendable. We all can learn from it. Even when he gives answers, he asks for more answers and more clarity. He has this boldness that all of us would do well to emulate. But here, Daniel Daniel hears. He doesn't understand He asks for more, and he doesn't get it. What he gets instead is, it's time to go your way, Daniel. It's time to go your way. It's time to put one foot in front of another and go your way. I understand you have questions about the outcome of these things, but it's time to go your way. It's a great example of how God sometimes chooses to interact with His people. He doesn't ignore requests for change or clarity or whatever, but sometimes the answer is not yet or just no. So I just want to ask, is this kind of response from God when we desperately want to know something, is this the kind of response that we're prepared to accept? Is it a kind of response that you're prepared to accept in life? Now, we aren't asking about the nature of visions that we don't understand, but we ask about other things that we don't understand. Why on earth did this happen to me? Why? 
Why did my life, why did my, my marriage, my kids, my career turn out like this? This is not how I drew it up. I've got all these health problems. Perhaps that's you. I'm in a bad marriage. It seems interminably bad. My grown, my, my, my adult children, things did not turn, they didn't turn out like I wanted them to, or that the, even like the, the Lord would have them turned out. This career I'm now stuck in. Why? This isn't the happiness I imagined. This isn't the life I wanted. Like, this isn't it, you might say. Why? I'm asking for good things. It's not like I'm just asking for plumb the depths of this world or for a million dollars or something. I'm asking for good things. A healthy marriage, kids who love the Lord. I'm not asking for some kind of one in ten billion. There's people I know who have that. Why not me? Why am I locked into a career where I can't excel and you know make as much money as whoever it is? I've talked with some of you about these things, and here's the reality. This is where you've got to let this, we've got to ask the question whether you can be content with this. After all the verses and all the prayers and all the caveats, sometimes the only response, which is not an answer, is it's time to go your way. It's time to trust the goodness and the power and wisdom of God and the lack of understanding and go your way. Go your way in the hope of the resurrection. And so as much as it depends on you and doesn't become an idol, work to change those things. You've got to make change to see change. Everyone wants change. Most people don't want to make changes. Okay? One's hard, one's easy. But don't be deceived into thinking that every gospel-transformed life ends like a fairy tale. There are some people whose lives and relationships and careers are very hard, and then they die. I would say especially in the East. The hope is not that God is working all things out for the pleasure or fun of delight or delight for those who love Him in this age. If God is working all things out for my delight and my pleasure, okay, and yours, He's doing a really bad job, frankly. That's not the promise, though. He is working all things for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And that is a good that is evaluated... Uh, on a perspective that includes resurrection and eternity, not 80 years or so. And so who, who needs to hear this? Who needs to hear this? Just take one more, take one more frustrating, disappointing step in faithfulness while you fight for gratitude. Have one more hard or awkward conversation while you pray for reconciliation. Endure one more day of pain and sickness while you eagerly await the revealing of the sons of God just like the earth groans. 
And do these things trusting in the power and the goodness and the wisdom of God in the absence of our ability to understand. That's the first thing I think we take away here we see. The second thing is our foundation in shattering. You know, it doesn't say that there's any getting out of this. The holy people are going to be shattered. That's what it says. Of course, people have different views. Are we being shattered right now in some sense? Are we going to be shattered? Are we going to be participating in it? Either answer still causes us to ask the same question because the foundation then won't be different than it is now. And that is just what is our foundation? What is our foundation? There's a shattering that's going to come from without, but there's a way that a foundation can crumble just because it's poorly made, poorly put together. And I'm suggesting that the only foundation that will last is going to be built on the person of work in Christ and fidelity to His Word as revealed in the Scriptures. The person and work of Christ and fidelity to His Word revealed in the Scriptures. And so here's the implicit warning then. Because everyone's like, yeah, of course it is. Of course it's Christ in the Scriptures. The warning is this. If we are uniting around anything else, then we are uniting around something that doesn't require the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, or the inspired Scriptures. If we are uniting around supporting or opposing, supporting or opposing a certain social movement, that will not be a foundation prepared for shattering. Uniting around, supporting, or opposing whatever political candidate policy legislation will not be a foundation prepared for shattering. There are many good things that we should be for and many very bad things that we should be against. But you don't need a risen Savior or inspired Scripture or Holy Spirit to advocate for social reform. Or political change. You can be a pro-life atheist. Then they are pro-life atheists. You can be a conservative Muslim. You can oppose racism and hate the church. Because there's a lot of good and a lot of evil, a lot of foolishness and a lot of wisdom, there is a lot to support and a lot to oppose. But that can't be the foundation We can't be a people glued together by the things we support and oppose in and of themselves. Those should be symptomatic of the foundation that actually gives us unity. It has to flow out of it. Not just theologically, but practically. So so here's kind of the, to put it really candidly. There are many Christians who feel more solidarity with a kind agnostic than a gruff Christian. And that person is standing on the wrong foundation. It is not a foundation that's prepared for what's coming. What that is, is within the church, a social version of Elmer's glue. And that's what the, that's the kind of unity it creates. You know all it takes for, for something to pull that kind of unity and foundation apart? The next issue that you disagree on with somebody. Hmm? Everyone saw this. and So let's just take the big three. It's like the unholy social trinity. We've got racial justice. That, that, uh, meaning it all happened at the same time back in, back in the day, a couple of years ago, right? 
So do you agree with me on racial justice, whatever, whatever, how, how you understand that, whatever the implications are? Yes. Okay. Here we go. All right. Oh, you agree with me about whatever's going on politically in this polarizing election? Oh, great. Do you agree with me about uh, COVID-19 or this and that? No. Oh, I thought we were together. I could go with you this far. Sorry. I have to just agree, disagree, and nod approvingly when we see each other. It's the social version of Elmer's glue in the church. Thinking that someone has more solidarity with Pagans who are kind, worshipers of false gods who act lovingly in some sense of the word, have, have more, I feel more solidarity with them than a Christian with rough edges or a Christian with a real broken past or a Christian who cusses occasionally. That's a foundation that will not stand, folks, I'm telling you. Because it's not a foundation that's built on Christ. You don't need Christ to advocate or oppose any of those things that I just said. And if so that's what unites us, we're united around something that could go on just fine if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We already have a foundation for unity in the person of Christ. So my question is this. How do you not just theologically acknowledge what the foundation is? Because everyone here says, yeah, of course, Jesus, I get it. But what about practically for you? Well, practically, in the church, a lay loan, life together, one another, that's what a lay loan is. In the one another's, how would you be able to identify if it was off in your life? I want you to ask that question to yourself on the way. How would you know if your practical foundation needing, needed some adjustment? Christ has risen. The promises of God all find their yes in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ, the resurrection is guaranteed. So we have the ultimate foundation upon which to stand. We shouldn't be trying to create other ones. It won't work. It won't work. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for a foundation that we can call the Rock of Ages. We are thankful for unshakable hope. We're thankful to know that right when things seem the darkest and somehow even get darker, that you are ready, that you are waiting, and that not one moment goes by that's not been allowed in your sovereign will. Lord, there all of us, some to varying degrees, some with more or less questions, we wonder why. Look how far whatever this is has set me back in life. Why? Look how unhappy I am as a result of this decision I'm stuck with. Why? And Lord, I pray that people who want to see change would certainly work to make changes. But that we would be prepared to hear it's time to go your way. In the hope of the resurrection, trusting in the power of God. Lord, please be merciful and gracious with us toward that end. In Jesus' name.